This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Dr. David Pelkovitz. Dr. Pelkovitz, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank God. How are you doing? Thank God. Doing very well. Really honored that you're joining us today. And as with all of our guests, perhaps the principal attraction is the wonderful work that you do and, and all of the interesting arenas that you've invested yourself in. But we'd like to get a little bit of context in that regard, get a sense of where did it all start? What was the trajectory that led to your professional uh, involvements and, and accomplishments? Okay, I don't, I don't often think about that. Um, <laughs> I grew up as a rabbi's son. My father, uh, actually now, thank God, it's been 65 years in one shul, a place called the White Shul in Farakway. And before that, he was a rabbi uh, in Ohio and in a few towns there in Connecticut. But he's been there for 65 years, thank God, and still going strong at age 95. We, I, you know, with the Incredible really pretty incredible. And his father was a rabbi. His father before that was a rabbi. So what um, happened? <laughs> no, I know. I know. I have, have to figure out what, what went wrong. He actually is very happy with me not being a rabbi. He would have been happy in any in, in any case. But what I always loved with what I saw in terms of the rabbinate was the, the pastoral part. You know, helping people one-on-one, -on -one, being able to be pulled into that. And I love the whole concept of Musser, you know, the whole idea of using Torah, using Jewish knowledge and applying it in a practical way to the wisdom of life, of living life. So what, from a career standpoint, I was very pulled to, I did go through rabbinical training and I did all that stuff, but decided never to actually become a rabbi. I stopped just short of my final test because I saw it as a burden in the sense that I thought I'd have to really behave if I was a rabbi. <laughs> so, certain movies I couldn't go to, whatever. I wanted to, I wanted to be a regular guy. You know, there's some challenges of being a rabbi's kid. I wanted to be a regular person. I was very drawn to psychology. And I think partly because it's a secular clergy. And that's what I've been doing. And I've had the unusual privilege of being able to partner with my father in terms of integrating. I do the Jewish stuff. We've written some books together trying to integrate positive psychology, a wisdom from Torah with, with secular wisdom. Most of my career has been as a clinical psychologist. I was um, I went to University of Pennsylvania for my PhD, then ended up being hospital-based for 25 years, where mm -hmm. I was director of psychology in this large hospital system and became very pulled into, in the secular world, working with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I became a professor, ultimately a clinical professor at first Cornell Medical School, then NYU Medical School, and was very lucky in my career to be able to be tied to doing work with abuse children, traumatized children and adolescents to do research in that area to have some federal grants in those areas. But then it was a natural for me to then take the work that I was doing in the secular world in our hospital and to then try to service the Jewish community as well. So that's in, in a real nutshell what the trajectory has been. Fantastic. Just on a personal note, my wife is from Far Rockaway, so she actually lives uh, on the same block as the White Shul. So I've had the fortune of being able to watch your father whenever I frequently travel there on a very regular basis. And I've also read the book that you wrote uh, together 
uh, at least the one about parenting. Right, right. So that was the, the, we wrote one on parenting from a Jewish and psychological standpoint. And then when we make the movie, I'll figure, I already know how I'm going to cast you in the movie. <laughs> Perfect. I'm looking for, I'll wait for the call. The more recent book is on positive psychology, which I find fascinating. It's very exciting to me. It's taking what Torah and Musar say about areas like gratitude and forgiveness and happiness and anger management and uh, passion in life, and then integrating with this whole relatively new field in psychology the last 15 years, which is the empirical study of positive psychology. How do you, how do you systematically bring that into your life? What is positive psychology, if you would sort of define it? Yeah, so the way it looks, actually, one of the ways of thinking about it is Tal Ben-Shachar taught a course in uh, Harvard yep. on positive psychology that became the single most um, uh, successful course in the history of Harvard. It had a waiting list going for four years, it, and I think it ended up with thousands of students in the class. It was a, very hard to get into. Amazing. But it, because it, it transforms life. And I've been very lucky to teach positive psychology in various places. And actually, I got to know Dr. Ben Shachar. I was a fascinating person in this, but it really started University of Pennsylvania. But what's amazing about it is it's research based. Hmm. How do you, in a systematic way, bring gratitude into your life? And what are the benefits of doing that? When they bring positive psychology, for example, they brought it into the um, Israeli school system, you know, the secular school system in Israel, and it was transformative. Bullying went down, academic scores went up, happiness levels of the teachers and the students went up. It was really pretty amazing how transformative it was. Huh. So it's just, it's just an exciting area to be involved in, and it's inherently consistent with Jewish thinking about how to bring the wisdom of Jewish thought into your daily life. You don't have to be religious to do it. Right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, I think, a very powerful construct, and it changes lives. I, I find over and over again in the courses I teach, even in people who read the book, that they'll talk about how it's, it's made a difference, you know, when you can learn to forgive, when you can learn to be grateful, when you could learn to know what's important and not important in terms of happiness, it suddenly changes things, you know, in a very positive way. Is it a discipline that translates into sort of a private clinical setting, or is it more something that you've sort of taught on a class seminar basis? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, it does. In a clinical setting, it's just recently that there's been direct research and clinical work on putting it in a clinical setting, meaning that let's say you have a depressed person and you could use everything that a psychologist, psychiatrist, or social worker or other mental health professional will use in treating depression. And then you marry to that the wisdom of positive psychology as well. As a matter of fact, I'm giving a all-day seminar in Jerusalem um, in November on applying, you know, doing positive psychotherapy, which is a very interesting balance between traditional psychotherapy and positive psychology. And it's, it's in its infancy, but all the initial research in terms of those outcome studies are very positive. Incredible. You know, you mentioned um, the notion of sort of empiricism. And I think, 
you know, I've had the pleasure of hearing you on quite a few occasions at different gatherings and seminars. And I think one of the aspects that people really enjoy about your presentations is precisely that you bring a lot of research and scientific backing to your talks. Do you think that people's appreciation of that is something that maybe is a function of our current generation of sort of a, a scientific mindset? Because I feel that something you do more than other psychologists that I've heard speak and present. And just before we hear Dr. Pelkovitz's answer, a quick note that the next three minutes or so, we experienced some sound quality issues, a little bit of clicking that you may hear. So please bear with us. Yeah, it's funny, you know, one of the big things in positive psychology is something called signature strengths. One of the tasks of everybody at some point in their life is find out when you're at your best. What are your greatest hits? What brings out your essence? Your, and every, everybody has it. When you exercise the signature strength, you don't get tired. You're always looking for ways to do it. You just love it. You lose the sense of time and it brings out, you ask your friends, what are my greatest hits? When, when have you seen me be at my best? And what you'll find is that to the extent that you could identify your signature strengths, those then can become kind of your pathway towards what's going to give you meaning and purpose in life and often success, you know, towards leadership, towards teaching and whatever. For me, to get back to your question, it just came naturally. I love doing this stuff. I love both research and doing studies and publishing and all that stuff. I also love the Jewish part, even though I didn't initially, at the beginning it, frankly, I didn't quite get it. It was something like I loved, you know, I was going to uh, yeshiva during the day and college at night, you know, uh, Brooklyn College at night before I ended up at Penn Time. And, you know, the learning didn't turn me on at the beginning. Today it does tremendously. I see the relevance. Back then, I didn't see the re- I didn't see the relevance as much. But then I sort of, I guess, my signature strength, in, in essence, was it spoke to me. So when I was able to integrate the science and the knowledge and the practicality with stories, which I grew up with the tradition of storytelling, you know, coming from a long line of rabbis, I guess that's one of the things that we all do. We love telling stories and narratives and things like that. And then when that was integrated with some of the Jewish stuff, it came together as my signature strength. But everybody has it. Everybody has it. It's just a matter of finding what turns you on that way. Anybody who's listening to this who took a positive psychology course knows that if you haven't, very easy to find your signature strength strength for free. You go on the University of Pennsylvania Positive Psychology website. It's called AuthenticHappiness.com. You put in signature strengths. It'll, it'll come out. It's a test. It's called the Values and Action Survey. It's free. It takes about a half hour to fill out. They give you a whole printout with your five top signature strengths. And then pay attention to it. Sometimes people are surprised. Sometimes people don't even know it's their signature strength. But then when they pay attention to it, They start using it in a more flexible way that sometimes becomes a key to really finding your inner essence and your meaning. Sounds like a worthwhile investment of half an hour. So it's it's interesting when you talk about the signature strengths, really what you're saying, it sounds like, is that your inclusion of all this, you know, scientific evidence and studies and, and things like that really is more about you than it is about the audience per se, although obviously that your energy and and connection to that material certainly uh, is contagious, I guess, to, to the listeners. 
Right. So it's a matter, it's a matter of it's combination of energy, but also paying attention, hopefully to what people want to learn about and being practical and being, I think, optimistic about the possibilities for change and whatever the area is, the trauma, which is depressing or self growth or change in life or any of that stuff. You know, I've seen a lot in the last maybe it's decade or so, uh, and you'll correct me if my impression is not right. It seems like there's been a real profusion of you know, observant or Jewishly connected men and women getting involved in the mental health professions. I don't know if it was as popular of an avenue when you were coming through the ranks. Maybe it was, but, but my totally anecdotal, non-empirical impression is that it seems to be something that is very attractive to people. Is that your observation as well? And, and why do you think that is, if it's the case? Yeah, I, I, I see growth, growth, tremendous growth. I teach at Yeshiva University in the uh, um, rabbinical program, the Smicha program. And there, the number of people who are, even if they have a plan to be uh, rabbis, you know, professional rabbis, they're also, many of them are getting degrees, either masters or PhDs, and sometimes even MDs alongside they're getting their rabbinical degrees much more than ever before. Yeah, I think you're right. It's definitely on the rise because I've been doing this for a bunch of years, you know, teaching in the rabbinical school. I, I think that it draws people because it's inherently, it's not a way to get rich. You're not going to make a ton of money. You can make a living. You know, you can sort of make a living. But even though it's not a source of wealth, it's often a source of meaning. You know, you're, you're, helping people. You're, you're, you're living a life of chesed, a life of being there for others. And I think people to a certain degree are more idealistic. They've seen that, you know, maybe the attraction to uh, the world of finance or the world of law firms or even the world of medicine is not as satisfying as it used to be. Hmm. They make more money and there's a lot that's extremely satisfying about any of those lives. You can make any career into a very satisfying life but here, it's literally the whole idea of a life of helping others, of being there for people. And I think people are inherently drawn to that. But it will not make you rich. Let me warn anybody listening. <laughs> it may make you happy. It won't make you rich. What advice would you share with people that are going down that path? People you know, all around me seem to be engaged in this discipline. What advice do you have? And do you believe it's a saturated field at this point? Do you believe there's still room for people to make their mark? You said, you know, you can make a living. Uh, do you believe that a particular degree is critical in this day and age, especially for those who just kind of want to do counseling and not maybe high-level academic research? Oh, absolutely. There's always room for good people. I find that people go into the field, you get the best training you could get. Very often people get specialized training afterwards, and they find what their passion is going to be. Sometimes it's not obvious at the beginning. But there are people who find that they love working with certain population. Two of my children, not because I pushed it at all, <laughs> mental health. And one has found real success and happiness in being a specialist and working with anxiety disorder. She loves it. She's great at it. And because she loves it, she's become very, thank God, very successful as a totally dispassionate, objective father. <laughs> I, hear, I hear it from others. And you know, and she's she's we'll commission a study to uh right, verify right. those results. And another daughter is going into more uh working with adolescents and working with trauma and working with abuse. Also, her practice is full, and as they don't use my she doesn't use my last name, she uses her married name. But she, the, the reality is that I think that each of them found what fit their personality 
and they took the time, the keys, they took the time to really get very well trained in it. There are no shortcuts. And when you do that and you care, the word gets out. The word gets out. Here's a competent, caring therapist, and there's always room. I've never known. I remember asking the question you just asked me to a seasoned psychologist, you know, is there going to be room? You know, back then there were very few psychologists in our community. And he, I remember what he said. He said, there's always room for a good person. And I remember, well, what's he talking about? I didn't, it didn't, and then it turned out he was, it was excellent advice. You know, there's room. If, you, if you're passionate and you do a good job and you care about people, word gets around. Do you feel strongly about a particular degree or, or line of training? No, no. So the PsyD is great. A PhD is, is also very helpful. It's a good degree, especially if you want to work in Israel or if you want to work doing research as well. PsyD and PhD are very similar in terms of the opportunities it'll give you. An MSW is also wonderful. The difference between the master's in social work and the doctorate in psychology, or for that matter, master's in, in health counseling, they all give you training. With an MSW, you often have to get more training afterwards in the specialized area because it's not primarily a therapy degree in most programs. Mm-hmm. If you get a specialized training afterwards, um, you, you will be every bit as competent and every bit as good as anybody with an MD or a PhD. And that's what the research shows also. <laughs> there we go. Dr. Pelkovitz, I think along the lines of there being sort of this enhanced you know, number of people going into this field. I think there's also a sense, certainly within the, the Jewish community, I mean, I think maybe in all religious communities, this, this may be the case, of a much greater focus or awareness on mental health issues, on the challenges that exist. Do you believe that this is really simply a fact of increased awareness? Or do you think that, you know, in our world, just a a crazier, more stressful, difficult world that we live in today? I'm sure you've thought about this question. What is it today that's providing for this great sort of concentration and focus on mental health issues, where even in family magazines and things like that, you're reading about all kinds of disorders and challenges? Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of a few factors. One is there's a much greater awareness because, you know, it's being talked about. The stigma of getting help has gone down. You're seeing in the background here my private practice office, okay? And it's in my house. And I remember when my children were younger, they would see some of the patients I was seeing in school. And they say, oh, I just saw your dad today. Or they'll come and they'll say, oh, is it okay if I go upstairs to see one of your kids? No shame whatsoever, which is great. It's like the stigma has gradually, now that wasn't the case when I started practicing 40 years ago, but it's clearly the case. So the stigma has become much less. I think Why? I think because we we're aware, hey, it, it, let's say it's something like that's biochemical, be it, you know, certain kinds of anxiety disorders, mood disorders. ADHD, we know it's, it's more, but it's no different than any other kind of um, neurologically driven thing. And it's something to be embarrassed of. It doesn't mean that um, you're broken. It doesn't mean that it's something that can't be fixed. I think people hear the therapy could be helpful. The effectiveness of various treatments, be it medication treatments or be it the kind of treatments that I do, you know, which is where you're sitting with people and you're using certain evidence-based treatments for almost any problem. It's not ever guaranteed that it's going to make things 100% better, but it's become more effective. You know, the 
fantasy that people have of laying down on a couch and just talking while the person doesn't talk to you. Some people still do that and it could be effective for some people, but there are so many more effective treatments now and the word gets out, you know, that this could be helpful and there's more financial support for it. Insurances are more likely. Mm. You look in today's New York Times, today's July 25th, 2017. You look in today's New York Times, the front page of the science section, big main stories about how in England, they now give therapy services to everybody for free. They've, it's a huge national experiment and people are using it also without shame and with the idea that it's effective. And they believe that in the long term, it's cost effective because the body keeps the score. If you don't get help for your psychological problems, it'll often show itself with different physical problems. And it's amazing that, that, that you have a whole major country now doing it. They still don't have the answers to how effective it's going to be. But usually when they do studies like that, they find that A, it can work, and B, that it's a very cost-effective thing to do, not only to improve quality of life, but to improve even longevity and, and physical health. Standing where you do, you've spent a lot of time studying the intersection, it seems, between religious life and psychology, secular, mental health, wisdom. What role have you found religion to play? Do you, do you find that these challenges and you know, psychological issues, mental health issues exist in the same proportion in religious populations and why so? And, and what role do you find religion plays? I mean, is it something that is, is helpful for people? Is it something that really stands apart and a person is either a healthy person who's religious or an unhealthy person who's religious? How do you sort of understand that interplay? Right. Okay. So yeah, there's been a lot of studies of that lately. When I went to graduate school many years ago in the uh, early the nineties, <laughs> yeah, no, that's I, I like being old. In the early in the early to mid seventies, religion was seen as a mass obsessive compulsive neurosis in Freud's term. It was seen as a crutch. We now know without that crutch you limp. It's only in the last. 30 or so years that there's been some real empirical research saying, is religion associated with bad outcomes? And the truth is, religion can be. If it's a toxic religion based on fear and fear of punishment and based on the negative, or it's forced on you, it could be associated with higher levels of anxiety and depression. Religion, as most of us practice it today, study after study after study, including very large-scale studies, show that people who are religious, in, in a real internal way, coming more from a positive place, are more likely to live longer, more likely to have happy marriages, more likely to have children who have lower risk for substance abuse, more likely to have lower risk for virtually every psychological disorder, and the list goes on. That basically, if you call religion a crutch, without the crutch, you limp. And it, it, what is it about religion that gives you this? It gives you a sense of meaning. It often gives a sense of community and connection, purpose, and an organizing understanding of what matters and doesn't matter in life. A healthy religion is going to be about being responsible to others, you know, about being moral and ethical. If you do it right, there are plenty of people who aren't actively religious who find that in their lives also, who meet all those needs, totally fine. But religion, as it's generally practiced today, at least in the world that I know of, is associated with a tremendously positive outcomes. Again, it's not the only pathway. There are many other pathways to those outcomes, but uh, it, it works. It works. 
Do you think that religion as an independent construct actually can address mental health challenges or is it really that somebody needs that sort of a, a, a solid mental health foundation to then engage religion successfully? Yeah, obviously for the millennia, it's been successful often, you know, with, without the mental health concept. I, I think it could live without it. Sometimes the two together. Now, there's a psychologist at Harvard, Dr. David Rosemarin, who's done fascinating research there where he's looked at using some stuff in Jewish sources in the Musser literature as treatments for anxiety. And then he compares it to treatment as usual with more traditional, he's a clinical psychologist, and he finds that it could be very effective as a standalone, but he integrates it. He integrates right. it, and I think it can be. You know, or many people say, you don't have to integrate it. You know, what I do doesn't have to have a Jewish component to it at all. Everybody brings a bit of themselves to the kind of therapy that they do. But in, all in all, it can be used synergistically. But for the most part, I think there's a place for everything. For example, after somebody, let's say, loses a family member or there's some kind of tragedy, the research shows that if you're doing okay just with the support you're getting from the community and with the religious support you may be getting to help you through a period of bereavement, that alone is enough. Not only is it enough, but when you're forced to get psychological help, when you don't really need it, it actually you get worse. The huh. PowerPoint slide I show on this from these 30 randomized clinical trials is titled, Chicken Soup Can Kill. People could drown in our chicken soup, okay? <laughs> and there people are better off without the therapy. But it, sometimes there is such things, pathological bereavement, and then therapy could become a very helpful kind of synergistic force together with religious and community support and support for coping mechanisms. So would you say that you see proportionate challenges in the, in the religious communities, or it sounds like you, you think there may be less of an incidence uh, of some of these challenges? So in the comparative research I've seen, it probably depends for what. And there may be a lot more biologic and genetic stuff going into this. So we know, for example, Jewish men have double the rate of depression as non-Jewish men around the world. Interesting. Sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. <laughs> go there, okay? Um, but um, in general... Jews, even though they may be at somewhat higher risk for depression and anxiety, probably again for biologic reasons, because there's a strong genetic component to this, sure. they seem to be a lower risk for substance abuse and alcohol abuse by a large factor. And do you think that's a function of stigma or self-reporting? No, no. Even when you look at these large-scale population studies and you have other ways of looking at it, that's a good question seems to be that Jews, there's definitely plenty of Jewish alcoholics, and there's a real problem, maybe growing problem with Jewish substance abuse and alcoholism, that's there. But relative to other populations, non-Jewish populations, there seems to be some lower risk. And, and I get, it's hard to tease out what's biologic and what's exactly. environmental and what's... Exactly. It's hard to tease it all out, but there are a number of studies that seem to show this. And, you know, it speaks to the fact that, uh, sure, you know, the, the, there, there's so many factors that go into this. But for the most part, Jews tend to be a little bit more likely to be, you know, maybe a little bit of a stereotype. But there's some very interesting research published in leading journals, American Journal of Psychiatry and similar journals. So I think it's, it's solid. Uh, I'll give you an example. Anxiety 
When you look at a group of kids who were adopted away at birth, and you look at them at age three, and you see what is their anxiety level more like? More like their biologic parents who they never knew or their adoptive parents who've been raising them. Turns out that their anxiety level is totally correlated to their biologic parents who they never met. So that those kind of studies show how strong the genetic biologic component is. So it makes sense that there's a, um, you know, these things are a little bit complicated. I wonder if depression has sort of been an, an inherited uh, gene over time, given the persecutions and you know, privations of historical Jewish life. It's very complicated, very complicated. And the history, by the way, then there's the whole field of epigenetics where we know that certain experiences like you right. passed on. So we know, actually, one of my children worked as a grant coordinator, a project coordinator on a study in epigenetics of third generations of Holocaust, uh, working with Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who's a world-renowned expert in this area at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital. And they looked at third generation, showing these epigenetic changes past right. generations from the Holocaust. Anxiety and, and things like... Yeah, changes that are associated with higher levels of anxiety and risk for trauma and things like mm. that. Dr. Bogovitz, what do you think currently are some of the, the great challenges facing the Jewish community from a mental health perspective? I know you've done a lot of work on you know, teens at risk, on marriage. I believe you were involved in a big study about marriage in the Jewish community, other issues, substance abuse, you mentioned uh, abuse, whatever it might be. What do you think are the great frontiers in Jewish mental health? So, I mean, one frontier, which is, I think, really important to look at because it's tied to bullying, tied to quality of life, is digital challenges. So digital challenges, like, look, what we're doing now is basically a digital interaction, right? We're right. doing this otherwise. And I think that um, there's amazing promise from digital interaction. But the more subtle changes that we know are taking place is what it does in terms of the online disinhibition effect. The tendency to be crueler and less empathic when our interactions are mostly by looking down and texting rather than looking at somebody eye to eye, heart to heart. So we know that there's a drop in empathy in people who are spending their lives on digital devices, um, a rise in bullying, problems in parent-child interaction where parents are constantly preoccupied on their devices and not spending the kind of really good time with their kids that they used to, and depth of thought, which has me concerned. You know, the, the shallow thinking, the way our brain through multitasking tends to be more fragmented. Now, again, there's a lot of positives also, and I don't want to sound like the old man that I am, <laughs> but, but I think it's a challenge in terms of parenting. It's a challenge in terms of thinking, a challenge in terms of maybe most importantly, interpersonal relationships and empathy. Because things are changing. We're seeing things are changing. And along with all the positives that are there, which is increased connection, you know, texting parents and grandparents and great grandparents and being able to be in touch much more than ever before, it's the quality of connection. I think that's a challenge. I think we'll be fine with it. I think that the, most, the latest research I'm seeing with the youngest kids today is that there's some shift where they more quickly leave their devices and maybe are recognizing the changes that have to take place. And hopefully as time goes on and there's greater recognition of the perils, the promise will dominate and the perils will go down. So that's one thing. 
the abuse issue, which has been a real problem, I'm optimistic because I see that there's increased recognition. When people need to report, they're more likely to report today. There's less covering up, more recognition of how parents could do effective prevention. There's a lot more work to do, but it's, it's beginning to happen, you know. And then some of the other issues, you know, like substance abuse and alcohol abuse and whatever, you have to be careful. There's a glorification of drinking alcohol in certain affluent areas. There's a change in parenting patterns where in the balance between love and limits, limits aren't put on kids with the same efficacy that they used to be. And because of that, kids sometimes are getting themselves in trouble in ways they didn't used to when they're in adolescence. But again, those are all uh, some of the challenges that, that probably always existed, but now we're existing in a, in a way that, that, that the challenges like always have changed. Standing from the perch that you're on, it, it seems like you have, a, I, I think, a remarkably optimistic outlook. How do you maintain faith in a community whose underbelly you're constantly exposed to? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, no, it's like, I, and I'm often asked that question. How does it not get to me? So the reason why is because I really, I really believe this. I hope I'm not sounding like a Pollyanna. What I see, okay, if you were a fly on the wall in this office earlier today, you would have seen a pretty, somebody who was a bad abuse victim, a sexual abuse victim, who when you see that they're given safety and they're given words for their pain and they're given support and their families help to believe them about what they went through, you literally see the light go back in their eye. Okay, you literally are able to see the growth and see this amazing kind of resilience. We're built to be resilient. So you, again, if you saw me in my earlier appointments, so it's children who've gone through some very tough times or adults who've gone through very tough times, but they've made up their mind to not give into it, to not succumb. And that's the way I spend my day. And as I spend my day seeing people who may have been through the mill and may come in looking depressed and hopeless, but when you're able to help them and you're able to somehow get them to believe in themselves, get them to recruit people who believe in them, you literally see the light go back in their eye. I had a rabbi who had a huge impact on me. He was a very famous rabbi in the last generation, Rabbi Palm. He was my teacher for six years in a row when I was in my advanced studies. Huh. And he used to say that when you see a child being abused, if you look the other way, there is a biblical injunction that says you're not allowed to pretend not to see something. If you see somebody suffering, you can't pretend to look the other way. You have to have their back. So he says that when you look the other way, it's like a huge, huge problem ethically and morally. He says, but when you help such a child, among the many mitzvahs that you're getting, among the many biblical injunctions that you're fulfilling, it's injunction to return a lost object. Shavata Veda, right? Returning a little subject. So I remember thinking the first night I was saying, what are you talking about? He said, because when you help an abused child, you're returning to them their lost soul. And I see that on a daily basis. You see the soul come back. You see it. So what I do for a living, and that's just saying me, I think anybody who does this work is you see the hope, you see the resilience. And in fact, abused kids, two thirds of them, they get the right kind of help and 
you know, end up with the right kind of support. The norm is resilience. Same thing with children of divorce. Same thing with all the other areas that we're talking about. So it, it sounds like your approach is to focus on the restoration and sort of the redemption of the victims or the people suffering from challenges rather than focusing on the perpetrators of those challenges. Look, I, I don't, again, it's not always successful. There are times that, that I'm not successful. There are times that either it's too far gone or I'm not effective enough or whatever, but the least they're coming to you with hope. And, you know, I try my best. And it's very discouraging, you know, when I can't help. But I would say far more often than not, the norm is to feel that in doing this kind of work that you're making a difference in somebody's life. Wonderful to hear. I just in sort of wrapping up, I, I know that you travel extensively. You mentioned you're going to Jerusalem. By the way, if you need anyone to carry your luggage or uh, flip the PowerPoint uh, switches, okay, <laughs> let right. me know. I give my grandparents, my grandchildren those jobs. They got, they got dibs. Okay, I'll have to, I'll have to see what I can do about that. Uh, cool, right. yeah. What are some of the most interesting places that you've travel to some of the most sort of unique conferences or experiences or the most exciting opportunities that you've had in this role? I've been, I've had so many, I've been so privileged. To me, one of the most meaningful and most unique was in Sri Lanka after the tsunami, where there was a tremendous loss of life. So I went with some colleagues, both from America and Israel, to work with 40 doctors for two weeks. Hmm. It was a train-the-trainer model, where we were helping the doctors who were going to help the country recover. Under a government auspices? Or? It was sponsored both by United States support and by Israeli support. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. And if you want, I'll tell you a, qu- a quick story. Please. A doctor uh, told me that um, on the day of the tsunami, he lived in the town in the southernmost tip of the country. He lived on a house built a little bit towards the top of a mountain. And he was a doctor in the town. By some miracle, he goes out of his house on the morning of the tsunami, and he's sort of stretching his arms, you know, breathing. It was a beautiful day. And he sees the tsunami coming. He sees, it's just like seeing a wave of buildings the size of Empire State Building coming in slow motion. And you felt him like slow motion. He immediately goes into fight or flight. He runs into his house, puts his mother in one arm, his wife in the other, puts his three-year-old daughter on his shoulder, all the people in the house. And with superhuman strength, he runs to the top of the mountain just high enough to avoid the flood. And now... And he saves them and saves himself. Now he's looking down on the town that he grew up in, the town he was a doctor for, and it's gone. It's totally gone. And he's in a state of total despair. And he said he has no idea why this happened. Because what would you do at a moment like that? He says involuntarily, what went through his head was a memory from probably about 20, 30 years earlier where he was struggling with a math problem. And his third grade teacher comes over to him, puts her arm around his shoulder and says, if something is difficult, you have to do it. If something's impossible, you have to try a little harder. And with her voice in his head, he runs down the mountain and saves nine lives. You just think about the hope, you know, that a seed planted generation earlier saved nine lives. So just think a word of encouragement save nine lives a generation later. And you never know. You never know when you encourage somebody or you help somebody or you're there for them when you're going to make that amazing bit of, amount of difference. That's an incredible story. True. And it's even true. <laughs> and it's even true. <laughs> One better. Doctor, what is sort of the next chapter for you? Are there, are there any initiatives that you're in the middle of working on or planning to launch something new? 
I'm loving teaching, so I'm preparing the next generation of rabbis, uh, along with some wonderful colleagues doing pastoral psychology. We give a sequence of four courses to these uh, wonderful students in pastoral Perfect. psychology and women in the Esther's and Talmud program. I'm doing that. I'm teaching um, also in the doctoral program and the master's program at Azrieli, the Graduate School of Jewish Education. I'm doing, a, a, the, in terms of active projects, um, we're doing some work looking at the impact of children who are growing up in families where there's a problem with high-conflict divorce, Agunot, just so we're doing a large study of that, trying to look at the impact in order to be more effective advocates for them, and probably a lot of other stuff that I can't <laughs> remember. I don't get bored. I don't get bored. So That's that. what it sounds like. So tell everybody, remember, follow your signature strengths. It'll always take you to the right place. Signature strengths. So it sounds like you don't get bored and you don't get sort of dragged down either. You really are able to maintain right, right, right. an optimism and a, a happy disposition. Dr. Belkovitz, where can people learn more about your work, find out about your books? and, and some Yeah, yeah. So again, so it has some boring stuff on it and some of it is more... Technical. Technical or whatever. The website, so you have that book, Positive Psychology, what is it called? Life in the Balance. To our perspective, some positive psychology. It's uh, whatever. It might, it might be, especially if you have a, um, an interest and a background in, Jew, in Jewish thought, it could be helpful and interesting. But also a website that's for free. Um, it, you just Google one word, D Pelkovitz, D-P-E-L-C-O-V-I-T-Z. The first hit will be a Google site, and you go there. The new stuff is under new lectures, but you could fool around on there and probably download some stuff. So you have some audio uh, presentations and so forth? Yeah, so you'll have some videos of some presentations, some uh, articles, um, you know, and some uh, PowerPoints and stuff like that. Some, a lot of MP3s and MP4s and, and some video. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pogovitz, for joining us been a real honor and look forward to uh, watching more amazing research and advocacy emerge from your uh, your great work. You too, and keep up the wonderful work you're doing. And I see that you have the same signature strengths and the same passion and the same optimism. So keep it up. We're trying. Thank you so much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.